Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Lens. And if you're listening right now, that means it's Monday. And I'm Debbie Elias, creator and host of Behind the Lens, film critic with movie reviews and interviews around the world in the U.S. and abroad in print and online 24-7. But every Monday, I am right here on AdrenalineRadio.com live with Behind the Lens and where we go behind the lens and below the line with directors, screenwriters, producers, composers, actors, every every varying fa- cinematographers, every facet of film, television production, in addition to music and, on occasion, stage. Very excited this week. We have thrilled with my first guest who'll be coming up at the quarter hour mark, Ashley Bell. You all know her for... The Last Exorcism, her feature film acting debut, The Last Exorcism 2, The Day, uh, The Marine, uh, Homefront. But Ashley has, uh, and most recently, Carnage Park. But Ashley has also ventured into producing and directing. And back in 2013, doing press for The Marine Homefront, we started talking about the film, that the documentary that Ashley's going to talk about today. Uh, Love and Bananas. Uh, it is an amazing, amazing documentary. I am so excited. It is finally done. It's taken five years. And we're going to find out th- about this five-year process from Ashley. But most exciting about Love and Bananas is that it is the opening night film uh, for for Earth Day weekend on April 20th. As part of the second annual 2018 Earth Focus Environmental Film Festival hosted by KCET and Link TV. Uh, last year, uh, the, fir- the inaugural year of the film, uh, Ed Bagley, Ed Bagley Jr., was a, a special guest on the show talking about his documentary, talking about his, ser- his web series, talking about his house, his eco friendly house. Um, now we have Ashley this year uh, talking about love and bananas and the preservation and saving of Asian elephants uh, in Cambodia, Thailand. We so often hear about African elephants, but now we're going to hear about Asian elephants with the story focusing around one incredible, incredible uh, Asian ele- elephant conservationist, Lek Shallert. And focusing on the story of Nuana, a 70-year-old elephant, partially blind, who they rescue and bring to the uh, Elephant Nature Park, which is run by Lek. Um, it's, the journey is amazing. And to see the love between the elephants, Lek, uh, the people that provide care and support, because all of the elephants at her particular uh, conservation park are all disabled in some fashion. Uh, But they're given a new life and they get to roam and be as elephants should be rather than being abused for logging or for trekking, uh, carting people around for tours and whatnot. So I can't, I can't wait to talk to Ashley about this. And at the half hour mark, we've got writer director, Tony Vidal and actor Jake Thomas. Most of you will remember Jake from Lizzie McGuire TV show, Lizzie McGuire movie. 
as Lizzie McGuire's younger brother, Matt. Uh, but they're here to talk about a winter break adventure called Baja. Seems rather appropriate to be looking forward to winter break when spring break is just now wrapping up. So it's going to be a lot of fun. But before we get to any of our special guests, um, we're going to talk a little bit about Chappaquiddick, Ted Kennedy. Um, the new movie Chappaquiddick is now out. It stars Jason Clark as Ted Kennedy. Uh, Jim Gaffigan as Paul Markham. Written by Andrew Logan, Taylor Allen. This is one of the most factually concise tellings of the story of Chappaquiddick you will ever see. Uh, Andrew and Taylor actually pulled all the inquest hearing transcripts from which they developed the script in addition to doing other interviews, meeting with people. It is extremely compelling. What is even more interesting is watching Jason Clark's performance um, because we see a Ted Kennedy that the public it doesn't know. Everybody uh, has no, knew him for so long as the lion in the Senate. What we see here is a very, as a man who is walking the line of a breakdown following the death of his brother, uh, following the death of Martin Luther King the year prior. Uh, a man who really has just the Kennedy curse for lack of a better description. Um, Clark shows us a very ineffectual man, a man who is more like a little boy trying on his father's new suit, which doesn't fit. Um, I talked in, I spoke with Jason Clark, but I also spoke in length with director John Curran, who is also best known probably for the painted veil and tracks the beautiful Mia Wasikowski movie shot in the outback of Australia also based on a true story. So take a listen now to my interview with John Curran as he taught, as we talk about what went into the making of Chappaquiddick, including shooting on the, that famous bridge itself. You did something that we have never seen based on script and based on your visual tonal bandwidth. You know, what we see on screen with Chappaquiddick is not Ted Kennedy, the lion in the city, in the Senate. No. We've got a very insecure, ineffective man who reminded me of a kid trying to fit into his dad's suit that's too big. Yeah. It doesn't fit. Yeah. And you really bring that to life. And this is something that nobody has seen. I mean, I remember when Chappaquiddick happened. It happened on my birthday, on my 11th birthday. Yeah. Mine's on my 9th. And, of course, then it was also that we had the moon landing. Yeah. So to see this brought out, to also see you guys not make the moon landing front and center, mm -hmm. because that's what everybody more or less now remembers. And they don't remember who Ted Kennedy was, and they don't really remember Chappaquiddick. And with all these dark undercurrents that we now see come to light, what you also very smartly do is your visual tone you and the wonderful cinematographer that you have and always have, the two of you create this lightness in look, sun streaming, the use of yellow in costuming and cardigan sweaters, rooms, light tones, yeah. but always with sun, always the, metaphorically, the light, we're shining the light on what's happening here. And it's an incredible, incredible metaphor juxtaposition. How did you go about designing this construct? 
Well, we, you know, we, it's when you're doing a period film, you have a lot of choices to make about uh, how much you pull a nostalgic tone into the photography, the production design, you know, ultimately the coloring of the film. And, you know, I, I wasn't shooting on film. It was the first uh, project I've done that I haven't shot on film, so I was a little bit, you know, sad for me. Um, and I, w- I would have liked to shot on film, but the reality is that, you know, we've gotten to the point with digital cameras that they're, you know, it's, it was a hard argument to make mm-hmm. not to shoot on the Alexa. Um, but we didn't want to do an over-period look. And, and, and I did want to capture this sort of dark story in this sort of resort environment. You know, Chappaquiddick is nothing if it's not kind of a bright, sunny, you know, beautiful island. And the resort town of Edgar Town and, and Martha's Vineyard, um, you know, I wanted to feel summery and in this, you know, sort of wealthy person's playground that this dark tragedy takes place. And I knew that a lot of the film was going to be taking place and flashing back to night, you know. So it is, it is uh, night and day, light and shadow. So there is, there is sort of like graphic, metaphorical um, decisions that we made. Um, but yeah, I, I, I didn't, I think that we, we wanted a certain patina that, that felt somewhat nostalgic and sun-drenched and backlit, but, um, you know, not so overt that it became, you know, uh, distracting. Mm-hmm. I think it's just, it's beautiful. Thank you. The tone, the visual tone is exquisite and it plays against, you know, this portrait that it really is a paradox. So we see this unfolding on so many levels within the film. And also something that you do that I found interesting, you, you a lot of wide shots and, and mid shots as opposed to extreme close-ups. You judiciously use those, which I think adds more gravitas and impact and also widens our scope. Yeah, we I, I shot widescreen um, for a couple reasons. Um, one, I just I wanted a, a wider frame that, where I could isolate Ted mm-hmm. at times. Um, but, you know, we had a very uh, ambitious schedule. I mean, really, I crammed a 40-day shoot into 32 days, probably more like a four, what should have been a 45-day shoot into 32 days. And I didn't want to cut the script. I've done that before, and I've regretted it. And so Maurice Alberti, my DP, and I, um, we made a decision that... Um, to find um, a graphic language for the film where we held on wide shots of, you know, the advisors, for instance. There's, no, there's not a lot of coverage in there, you know, and, and of, let scenes play out and wide. Instead of, you know, going into additional coverage and adding time to our days, mm-hmm. you know, we had to... Sh- I, I didn't want to shoot Run and Gun and have it be sloppy, kind of a handheld vibe to it. Um, I wanted it composed and I wanted it elegant... And um, part of that was like, okay, let's be reductive in the way we come at it. So it's a it's a simpler told story in a lot of ways. No, it worked. It works beautifully for oh, this story. Yeah, you know, something that we also see is the relationship, be- how you develop the relationship between Ted Kennedy and Mary Jo Capetti. Kate Mara is exquisite. Yeah, she's good with the performance. And I'm curious, and maybe the boys are more, you know 
more informed on this particular issue. But how much of that relationship was based on the inquest, research, and, you know, talk about town, or and how much was hypothetical, this is what they might have been talking about in the car? Well, there's no evidence that they had any physical relationship. Right. And if I found any, it would be in the film, you know? I didn't preclude the op- the option that that might have happened. I think that that's it's open to interpretation in the film. Did they or didn't they? And I, I purposely did that. I, I was very against any scenes where we see them, you know, having a physical moment together. Because there's ne- never any evidence to. No, and and but I, but it, for all I know, it could have happened. You mm-hmm. know, for all I know, they could have had like a you know a, a three week affair. I don't know. So it, it's. There's the suggestion of it, and then there's the suggestion that maybe it didn't happen. Mm. So that's that. Um, but, you know, from from a lot of my read, whatever I could find on her and they could find on her, it's clear that, like Teddy, um, she was devastated by Bobby's death. And she was an integral part of his, you know, campaign. And so were those other girls. They weren't slouches. They were highly educated, very intelligent, ambitious, um, competent women who went on to become, you know, in their own right, all very successful. So we wanted to kind of um, revise history in that regard in terms of her, that she wasn't just some floozy secretary. You know, she was something of substance and had ambitions. And that after, and the fact is that after Bobby was killed, she left Washington. She was devastated by that. And my thing was that what's going to unite these two isn't a sexual attraction, it's a mutual depression over Bobby's death. That to me was, was what connects the two of them. Um, and and it builds from that. So, you know, I sketched the relationship with the guys of two people sort of united in their grief. Mm. No, I mean, it plays so well, especially when you see what happens after at the bridge. And, of course, shooting at the bridge just adds so much history yeah. and authenticity. How important was that for you? to shoot at the bridge. And, of course, then I know you went down to Mexico, down to the huge tank down there, yeah. to recreate for your underwater scenes. Yeah. And the bridge. We built the bridge mm-hmm. down there. You know, the, when you visit, when you hear, when you read about the story, and we all know about it, going out there, it's it's sort of, it sort of blows you away how tiny and insignificant this little tiny bridge is and what a huge effect it's had on history you know uh, in this country um, because I do believe if Ted didn't have this accident you know his trajectory would have been completely different yeah. um, and I, you know I don't want to and there's there's such specificity to the geography of that island you know the way the main road curves and then there's a dirt road that goes off to the right it goes it has, you know, a very distinct kind of architecture on the island, the salt box architecture. And the bridge itself, the way it's angled to the road and how kind of minuscule it is. I felt that these are all characters, you know, in, the, in this famous story. And they're sort of famous characters in, in this story. And I wanted, I thought, to get the ghosts of Chappaquiddick in the film was well worth it, you know. And it, it was um, a stretch for production to get out there for a few days, but I think there's a lot of value to it. And that is the bulk of our interview with John Curran. There's still a few more tidbits that you'll get to hear on BehindTheLensOnline.net. 
But right now, I'm so excited to welcome Ashley Bell to Behind the Lens. Hello, Ashley. Hi. Hi, how are you? I am so happy to be talking to you about Love and Bananas. You know, at the top of the show, I was I was telling the listeners that you and I first talked about this back in 2013 when you were doing press right. for the Marine Homefront. This oh is, my God. This yeah. has been... And because of the fact that David Castleman is executive producer, and I know David from my other life of 27 years in law. So... Of course. <laughs> of course. So I, when I first saw that Love and Bananas was done, and I think you saw it, I was posting on Twitter, I have to see this, I have to see this, I have to see this. It was well worth the wait, Ashley. This film, this documentary is beautiful. Emotionally beautiful. Oh I I am so proud of you as a director that you made this journey. It's you. You should be patting yourself on the back, Debbie. Thank you so much. Truly, I cannot tell you how much it means to hear that this film is just coming out and hitting audiences. So to get this response means absolutely the world. Um, we. Uh, you know, the the story is about um, we rescue a 70-year-old partially blind Asian elephant and drive her literally across Thailand 500 miles to freedom at an elephant sanctuary. And we document world-renowned Asian elephant conservationist Lech Chyler. And to have had the opportunity and the tr- Lech's trust to be able to be in her shadow and be under her wing and to tell this story. It was such an honor that we had to, we had to get it right. Um, and I am, I'm so, so happy that we're, we're getting this national release from Abramorama and we'll be able to raise awareness for Asian elephants. Oh, and, and, you know, and that's so important because when everybody thinks of the plight of the elephants, they think of the African, the African elephants in the African plains, they forget about, and we talked yeah. about this five years ago. You know, they forget about <laughs> the Asian elephant, that there are plenty of them there. And you see these, you see great monuments to the elephant. Um, and people forget that they are used for trekking and toting people. And then they come into play with a lot of the illegal logging that takes place. Yeah. Yeah, there, there you go. Um, it's a very well-kept secret what it takes to um, to take a take a wild elephant and and break them for captive use and for use in entertainment or for work. Um, so one of my the big aha moment was seeing the footage that Lex Tyler captured deep in the jungle when um, when they when they break Asian elephants, it's a process known as Pajan. And what happens is a baby elephant is taken away from its mother at a very, as a baby, it's put in a box, it's restrained in the box and it's beat straight for 24 hours for a week until the bond between the baby and the mother is replaced by the fear of man and the fear of whatever tool man is using. Um, if it doesn't work in the first week, it's repeated again for another week until it works. Uh, after that, elephants are taken to learn how to give rides or stand on their front legs or um, paint 
or play elephant polo or soccer. And, you know, if people know better, they do better. And people just are not aware that this is what happens to take a wild elephant and make them serviceable for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we're trying to get across. I mean, for the for the last five years, I've, I've explained this documentary to people. I'm doing an Asian elephant, you know, doing a documentary about Asian elephants, and they go, "Oh, I love elephants. I rode one. Oh, I love elephants. I saw. I I, I got an elephant painting." And it's just because they don't know. Mm-hmm. So you know, that all being said, we really wanted to make this film for like young audiences and for people to go to this film and understand the solution and what they can do to help elephants, no matter where they are in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most exciting things was we just had our world premiere at the DC environmental film festival. And, um, you know, you, you're like panicking all day and hope <laughs> there are going to be more than 15 people. Uh, and we got there and it was sold out, Aww. but the audience was filled with kids and teenagers like young teens and everybody stayed and we kept the film low on graphic content. So mm-hmm. low on, we just enough footage to get people to understand the crush box situation. Mm-hmm. And then bam, we're off to the races. We're off on an elephant rescue. Um, the film is, is, you know, even in doing a documentary, of course I wanted to do a documentary, but I just wanted to take audiences on an elephant journey and on an elephant rescue. Because when I'd seen that footage from our conservationist, like Chilert, it was the most harrowing, hopeful, exciting, electric footage I'd ever seen. And Mm -hmm. I was like, that's the story. If audiences see the hope and the victory and the triumph of of something like this, they'll get it, you know? So... um, it's just, it's just been, it's been, a, it's been incredibly artistically rewarding and just an incredible honor these last couple of years to be working to get the spirit with <laughs> which Lex works right, the humor with which she works right, and just to honestly, honestly tell an elephant story. You know, when, when I've seen with my own eyes, when Lex takes off the chains and lets an elephant be an elephant, when they're finally on her sanctuary, it's, it's 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 nothing short of miraculous, and I'm a very skeptical person. So, well, and that's when one, I that's saw one the, these elephants. Yeah, go ahead. No, sorry. I was going to say that's one of the yeah. beautiful things with the way you have constructed this documentary, Ashley, from a directorial point of view, and you're also one of the producers on it, and you wrote it. Um, you take us through the entire journey. You give in. You give plenty of facts. You have some lovely animation that the kids have to like when they're going to like it when they see that. So you've got something that appeals to them. As you said, you have just enough of the harshness to let without Mm -hmm. going overboard. But then as you take us through the sanctuary and you take us through and talk about the herding and how, when a new elephant comes in, how they get to wander and kind of pick and choose their own family that they want to be a part of. It is so connected, and through it all, there's you covered in mud and, in one case, apparently, (laughs) elephant dung. Um, Yes. 
on your face, no less. Uh, this oh, yeah, ta- you bet. <laughs> talk about, you know, giving it all for your craft, giving it all to a project. I defy anyone to t- to t- provide me the name of another director who actually had elephant dung on their face in the name <laughs> of making a, a film. I, I oh mean, it's you. Well, it was a blessing. So I was like, okay, I'm opening myself up to this moment. <laughs> but, you know, the fact that here you are, a regular person coming into this world. Yeah. And Lech takes you in. And we see you on yeah. camera. And by the way, you're two cinematographers. Uh, I mean, it's like John and Roddy are great. They're brilliant. Their footage yeah. is fantastic. But. Yeah. We see the wonder on your face. We feel your wonder at seeing these magnificent creatures, which is a touchstone for any audience member that's going to see this film, Ashley. Wow. Thank, thank you. I Thank you so much for recognizing that. Um, when we started, because I'm an actress, I did not want to be on camera because it's wasn't my story I felt and it just was luck and the elephants and the job was to tell the bigger story you know even as an actor you're there because of something way bigger than you you have mm-hmm. a character can to convey you have to get the director's message across and you have to serve the overall script the piece that you're there um that was telling an elephant story for for this film and after the test shoot we found that there needed to be there needed to be a representative for the audience to go in and ask everything the audience would be asking um and once we kind of realized that there was a a, a an absence an, an absence there and something that needed to be filled we began to make choices in the pre-production and also the edit of great. I, my role will be the bridge for the audience to take them there to tee it up and then get out of Dodge and let the elephants sing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And let Lex sing. So, um, thank you so much for, for recognizing that. That was, um, uh, we wanted to handle that with immense care. Um, to, to make sure that was, was handled right. So there were a lot of choices in, in regards to where I help and where I get out. You know what I mean? <laughs> and yeah. you make it very clear in there while Nona is trying to be introduced into a potential new family, you know, to see how they connect. And certain elephants were not too happy about the meet and greet. So you actually, you guys got out of the way. Um, and you, but you include that so that people realize you understand these are wild animals. You didn't sugarcoat, you, you didn't yeah. sugarcoat this, that it's like, oh, it's all Lottie Don. You can walk onto an, an elephant conservation park and you can get down in the ground and you can cover yourself in elephant dung and you can play with the elephants and feed them. That's, you make it very clear. In the documentary, through the visuals, through your actions and interactions, these are wild animals. These are creatures that belong to the earth. And you really break that down and portray it. And, you know, your editing has such a beautiful ebb and flow that keeps that whole idea going through the whole documentary. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, that that moment, especially where I'm under them, was because of Lek. You know, mm-hmm. Lek is mom to these elephants. She's their matriarch. And because I was with her, I was allowed to have that seat mm-hmm. under the elephants. Um, when you go to the sanctuary, you're immediately warned to, to keep a distance because they are wild animals mm-hmm. that are on a sanctuary because the sanctuary is is a hospice in every sense of the word. These elephants have been under severe psychological distress right. and, and physical abuse. And they need to they they they, they cannot go into the wild again or, or a or a more wild quote unquote sanctuary. Um, they need uh, medical care and help and that is why they are in, on the sanctuary. Um, uh, when even on the days when when we felt like oh we have to we have to get this bit of content and this bit of content and maybe do this setup, it was so interesting the way when you had an agenda out on the sanctuary grounds, it did not happen. The elephants that's the elephants' land. That's mm-hmm. the elephants' time. And they, I don't, you know, mean to say this in a spiritual sense, but kind of in a spiritual sense, they're going to tell you the story they're, they're going to tell you. Mm-hmm. You know, you are dealing with huge wild animals and you, you cannot have an agenda around them, which was, you know, we felt that very early on. It was like, great, this is their space. How dare we mm-hmm. get, pull out the camera, get a huge <laughs> lens on there, be very sensitive with any kind of equipment or sound equipment to interfere with their personal space and watch what happens and I ha- when and, they're themselves. You know, and you mentioned yeah. sound, and I have to just applaud yeah. you with the sound design <laughs> and your composers who actually integrate the elephant sounds that they make talking to each other within your underlying scoring. I am so happy you mentioned that. Ian and Sophia were brilliant composers. It's an original score, and we had recorded... Asian elephants are very, very vocal. They chirp and make trumpets and noises and communicate and and have, are so expressive and vocal. And in the doing of it, it was this hope as we were filming that we would possibly somewhere in a star-crossed world <laughs> collaborate with musicians or composers that would be open to working with these sounds in a way um, and just weaving them into the score. And what Ian and Sophia Holtquist were able to do with taking these elephant sounds and turning them into elephant whales, so to speak, or to stretch the sounds and incorporate them into the score was such a... When I first heard it, it just sent shivers through my body because I always wanted the audience to be feeling viscerally through their gut mm-hmm. the story of an elephant. Yeah. And even though you're not seeing it physically, but you're being hit with this low reverberating sound, it's coming at you in a way that's only appealing to you physically or to your subconscious. And that was just always keeping the audience emotionally engaged in this elephant story. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and they handled it with such tact and such artistry, and it's such an innovative score. I, I, oh. um, 
thank you for mentioning that because it, I love talking about them whenever I can. I mean, I, I, I love the score. I mean, I love the whole documentary. Ash. It, it is, you know, <laughs> oh, thank you. the whole thing is so amazing, you know, and unfortunately you and I are out of time, but how, I got to okay. ask you before I let you go, I could talk to you all day about yeah. this doc, Ash. You know, we're going to, thank you. We're going to have to get, I'm going to try and come to the festival on the 20th um, for the private, the, uh, you've got the West Coast premiere of Love and Bananas. That's right. At the Earth Focus Environmental Festival. The KCET Earth Focus Festival. We'll be having the LA premiere of Love and Bananas on the Sony lot. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we are opening for a nationwide screening day around the country on Earth Day, Sunday, April 27th. Mm-hmm. And then we are starting our official rollout. We'll be opening at the Landmark in New York on the 27th. of April. And then at the LA, um, at the Lemley in Beverly Hills. On May 4th mm-hmm. and running for a week. And then... And we will... The whole team will be there for Q&As and um, to be part of the everything and to to introduce you to this species and to take you through the night. So, well, yes. You and Everybody I... come out and join. Well, and I'm going to run into you at one of these. One of these, I promise. Fabulous. I promise. And hopefully, right. you know, maybe right. even we can sit down again, and, you know, and do a more in-depth talk about the making of oh, love, love and Bananas. Yeah. Ashley, thank you yeah. so, so much for calling in today. I'm just, oh, I've been waiting, I, time. I've been waiting for this film for five years. So I, I oh my God. <laughs> so, you know, you had, you had me, yeah. my interest peaked for five years, woman. So you far surpassed really an honor thank you you far surpassed it thank Ashley. you so much thank you thank you and i will see you soon wonderful i'll see you at one of these okay yes. and everybody can find out screenings on loveandbananas.com yeah it's and, all the information and facebook so. and twitter you. it's everywhere thanks ashley thank you so much pleasure to talk to you bye-bye bye and that was ashley bell talking about love and bananas and now, now we're moving into our next guests, uh, Tony Vidal and Jake. Ah, I got to get my notes. And Jake Thomas. Tony and Jake, are you there? Yeah. I'm here. This How is are you? Hello, gentlemen. Well, it's so nice that, you know, you could take a break from shooting films about breaks and, and come on to Behind the Lens <laughs> to talk about Baja. Um, first of all, guys, this film is gorgeous to look at, uh, right out of the box. Absolutely. Right out of the box. Thank you. It is and, and beautiful. Credit to, uh, credit to our DP, a guy named Jorge Roman, who's one of the premier Mexican cinematographers. We were very lucky to get him and he was an absolute master with the red camera. So we got lucky on that one. Oh, what lenses did you use on this one, Tony? Because it you've got some magic hour shots in here that just keep going and going and going. Well, part of it was we're in such a beautiful place that you almost didn't need to do much. Mm-hmm. We're in Loreto, Mexico, and also uh, in Rosarito. And uh, pretty much it's beautiful there a lot of the time. And uh, 
lenses. You know, I couldn't tell you that. You'd have to ask Jorge. Okay. Maybe Jake I think, knows. I think we were using the Zeiss. We were using the Zeiss oh. CB2. Oh, nice lenses. <laughs> Zeiss is, as I've always said, Zeiss is beyond nice. Um, yep. Wow. So now for you as an actor, Jake, I mean, how hard is it to say yes to a project when you find out you're going to be shooting down in Loretto and Rosarita Beach and it's all about being on break and, and having a good time? Uh, not too hard, and it really helps that we had such an awesome cast along with me. So, uh, yeah, it was it was definitely a, a dream job for sure. Yeah, you know, how did you? Uh, you know, how do you approach um, a film like this, Jake? You're no stranger to film and television. You've done plenty of television, Lizzie McGuire. You've done films. You know, how do you? And but you know, we've watched you grow up, but you're now transcending into definite adult roles. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you, you know, you're not Matt McGuire anymore. So how do you (laughs) distance yourself in selecting roles like Brian, um, to create a whole new identity at this stage of your career? Because this definitely moves you in and this moves you out of the police procedurals. We've seen you in on television. This Mm -hmm. really shows an adult Jake. That is so much fun, albeit infusing a lot of nervous Nelly characteristics into Worrywart Brian. Um, yeah. But there's a, there is a great freedom to your performance that is refreshing to Thank see. You. you know. How Thank d- you. Yeah, I I think uh, it's it's kind of been an evolution with my uh, the characters that I've I've played over the years. Um, it's it's been a definitely a an interesting range between the police procedurals where I am playing a, a serial killer murderer to uh, the stuff that's much more lighthearted on Disney Channel. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I like the opportunity to play something that's more of a, a straight man, something that, you know, Brian, he has his issues, but really in this film he's, he's trying to be the one who's making sense of all the, the madness around him. So I, I do like the opportunity to play a, a role like that. And uh, I, I feel like it's another step in my evolution of my career. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Tony, your casting in this, in this film is so key. We've got, we've got to have chemistries that, that mesh amongst our four primary friends, Brian, Todd, Jessica, and Lisa. Then you introduce Carmen who falls in very easily and naturally. But that's very difficult with an ensemble as closely associated within a film as your cast is here. You know, what kind of challenges did you have to to put this youthful cast together and then bring in, you know, your more established character actors like Jose Zuniga and then Cynthia Stevenson and Kurt Fuller, who we have seen forever in everything, uh, th- right, right. And let me just check something with you. you can you hear me okay? I can hear I'm you sure fine. That. Yep. Okay, perfect. Um, you know, it helps that I know a great casting director named Emily Schweber, and we spent a considerable amount of time casting the principal roles, and it was not an easy process, although at the end of the day, there's usually one person who comes along and it's just the right person. And in a way, it's kind of up to the film gods to uh, 
allow that to happen. You know, it's, it's, I don't take a lot of personal responsibility uh, for that other than when I feel like, oh, the right person showed up, I say, let's, let's go with that. So we had our four main people, Jake and Chris and Michelle Deshaun and Ariane Mendy. And uh, to be honest with you, uh, the second choices uh, in every role were not even close to the first choices. So it kind of fell into place. Now, in terms of the chemistry, these guys came down to Mexico and they immediately bonded. And we had Carmen, who's uh, a French actress, actually named Zoe Carafas, who was brilliant. And she came in from France and they instantly hit it off and were riding all over the place in golf carts and having a great time and really getting into the roles and getting into uh, feeling like they were a group of friends, which is what they are in the movie. And in real life, they became that. So it just kind of uh, just kind of happened, Debbie. You know, now, Jake, I heard a little chuckle there as he's talking about you guys riding around in golf carts. Um, why do I think that you guys were doing a lot more than riding around in golf carts? I, I, I tell you, I mean, honestly, first week we were uh, <laughs> we were as thick as thieves. I mean, the, the first week, we, and then we <laughs> were continuing on for the entire month, just became such great friends. Every night we'd make sure we met up and got to talk with each other and uh, spend time kind of building this friendship that was also really growing on camera as well. And then uh, in really getting to see that grow, on camera, I think, really makes it magical, too, because really, everyone was so talented and everyone was such a pleasure to work with. It just made it such a great experience. And, yes, there were plenty of <laughs> taking golf carts for a spin around Loretto. So, you know, now, definitely true. Now, I'm curious, Tony, you have this glorious, super tricked out luxury RV that all of them are piled into. I'm surprised you didn't, like, mm-hmm. cut down on budgeting and just make them all stay in the RV and live together. <laughs> well, I don't know if they would have agreed to that. And we have a, a little a union called Screen Actors Guild. To oh. So uh, <laughs> that that would not have been possible, not in Mexico. Maybe if we had shot in the U.S., which actually brings me to an important point, Debbie, is that our movie was shot 100% in Mexico with a 100% Mexican cast. So in terms of authenticity boy it doesn't get any better than that and i think it really shows in the movie mm-hmm. I mean, not just in the visuals but in you know there's a vibe to it there's a mexico vibe and uh, i'm really proud of that yeah the entire ambient nature of the film from the opening shot you know in the desert with the cactus um you feel it feels like mexico it does not feel like the southwestern united states it feels like Mexico. And all of your supporting players outside of your main cast members, you were using all, were you using actual native actors or, you know, just locals from the area as extras? Well, it looked a bit of a combination of both. We had a local casting director who had some acting talent locally in Rosarito. Uh, in Loretto, there really wasn't anybody. So in those instances, if we had a day player who had a line or something, we would, yeah, we would bring in a local. And in terms of all the extras, boy, they were, they were uh, regular, real people. So there's a, a sense of realism uh, 
to the movie, uh, at least in terms of the extras. Now, as you know from the plot, we we have some fantasy elements and some really fun stuff, too, and we exaggerate some things for comedies. But um, at its core, you know, it's really about Mexico. I've been to Mexico quite a bit. Actually, I'm half Mexican myself. My mother was Mexican. So, you know, I feel like, and, and this is not to say it's a film about Mexico. It's an American road comedy that's mm-hmm. set in Mexico. So it's kind of a, a hybrid of a, just a fun comedy, but in a unique foreign authentic locale. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it harkens back to some of the 1950s, early 60s um, comedies that were out where, you know, spring break, they don't just head to Palm Springs. They're heading over to Italy. Um, that's essentially what you're doing here. And you've got the whole road trip vibe going on as well. And I really love that element of the road trip, the buddy comedy road trip. And then you do have some really interesting plot twists going on that take us into the fantastical. But of course, anybody that's mm-hmm. ever gone on winter break or spring break anywhere knows that fantastical could be the operative word. Yes, and as long as you uh, live to tell about it, it's all good. Um, you know, we really uh, we really wanted to do a, a road comedy, but with an extra dimension. So mm-hmm. we have the plot, we have the comedy, we have the buddy stuff. Um, at the same time, uh, this is a film with a very good nature and a positive vibe, mm-hmm. and each of the characters learns and grows, and by the end of the story... Uh, they're wiser and more knowledgeable, and they've had, uh, dare I say, a transformative experience in their trip to Mexico. So the goal in the movie was to uh, keep it lighthearted and uplifting and also give that experience to the audience. You know, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Tony. I want to ask you about this, Jake. In a film like this, you don't expect the characters to really have the emotional arc and growth that they have. Uh, I love the trajectory that your character of Brian goes on uh, in terms of the relationship with Carmen. And I have to say your chemistry with Zoe is amazing. Um, but even in his, you know, his uh, buddy, buddy chemistry with Chris, Chris's uh, take on Todd, you'd really don't expect to see that depth of personal growth within a character in a film like this. Were you surprised when you read the script and, and realized that's what was happening with each of the characters? Yeah, I, I liked it a lot because, you know, for, for a single character, sure, uh, to, to undergo some type of, of big change or arc uh, within the story, but to get four characters uh, all on the same journey, each really with their own individual arcs mm-hmm. and and the growth that they're going through uh, be portrayed in different ways, very, and in some ways, uh, very uh, smart and subtle ways, uh, I think is a, is a really special thing. And I, I, I enjoyed seeing that in the script when I first read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For you as an actor, Jake, do you, have you developed a taste yet? Do you prefer working film or television or still a hybrid mix of the two? Because in television, with a lot of the one-offs that you've done, you really don't get to explore a character the way you do in a film, and particularly a film like Baja. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree that, you know, uh, with some TV shows, especially those where you're not really wanting to see a, a, a growth, you're wanting to see a more serialized kind of um, program where the characters more or less stay the same. That's how a lot of comedies are for the most part. But um, it, it is nice to uh, to kind of sit with a character and really kind of kind of make a mental map of where they're going in their own headspace throughout the film. And I, I do, I do absolutely enjoy getting to do that. Um, it, that said, I think, I think TV two at the same time is changing so rapidly now where, uh, we're seeing a lot of smaller projects that are getting web releases and stuff that you're, you're getting to see kind of film quality or film esque kind of plot lines and, uh, characters start to pop up. Mm-hmm. You know, now for you as a writer-director, Tony, to piggyback on what Jake was just saying, you know, how is this changing landscape of production for you in terms of, you know, writing and directing films? You know, are you seeing a shift in anything uh, that's opening up things wider for you, more avenues for your work, uh, or expanding your own horizons in terms of storytelling? Well, I kind of stick to uh, one central concept, which is uh, trying to have characters that arc and grow and through a story to impart some kind of learning or journey or wisdom to the audience. So in that sense, what I do is kind of classical and is unchanging and to be honest with you, it's all I know how to do. So uh, I was trained as a feature film screenwriter at USC Film School a long time ago. I'm a big fan of the classics. I believe that great stories have three acts in the beginning, middle, and end, and characters that arc and they're about something. So uh, I think that's universal, and that's never going to change, and, and that's what I do. You know, where did the idea for Baja come from for you? Is this is this the kind of film where you just suddenly in the middle of the day one day it's like hmm winter break what can <laughs> I do with winter break because everybody's done so many spring break films that I I I can't remember right. one that we actually it was a winter break so I, I'm curious where the well, idea came from the idea came really from a more of a thematic. Uh, impetus, which is to portray characters who are in their early 20s, 21, 22, and revealing or putting them in a situation where they had to learn and grow and uh, make a transition from youthful illusion to some kind of more mature awareness. Now, that's the thematic. Now, I'm not sure that that came first. Uh, the other thing I can say is that I love road trip movies. And uh, I do think they present a great opportunity for comedy, but also for expanding vistas, literally expanding mm-hmm. vistas and interior expansion as well. So, uh, I don't know, at some point, at somewhere, uh, the idea came, uh, you know, I love RVs, I love road trip movies, I have this theme I want to explore, and it all kind of came together, and the final piece was giving it, you know, some kind of extra magical cultural dimension, which was not that difficult because of my own Mexican heritage and, and experience traveling in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So the answer to your question is it kind of just 
slowly over time came together. Mm. And uh, there was a certain threshold where it became, ah, a road trip to Mexico with four young people. <laughs> you know, now, Jake, you've worked with many directors over the course of your career. For you as an actor, what was the experience like of working with Tony? Is he more of an actor's director, more of a technically oriented director? What's your take on the process of working with Tony in the making of Baja? Uh, I would say Tony is very well-rounded in that, uh, you know, he, he's coming from a very strong writing background, and he knows the characters so well, and he knows how they, how they really need to be portrayed. And, but at the same time, he, I think, had a very big influence in how uh, everything played out in the film uh, on the technical side as well. And I know he was, he was there working very hard uh, afterwards on uh, just the visuals of the edits and that, how everything looks in post. Uh, it, was, it was enjoyable working with him. You know, he, it, it, it's nice to work with someone who uh, really believes in the source material since it is his own and uh and really know what vision that he's going for mm-hmm. you know did you get to i have to ask the big important question did you actually get to drive the rv oh yes oh yes and that was oh god a little a little frightening and and honestly though <laughs> i feel like brian the character brian it would be extremely nervous and nerve-wracked driving this very expensive RV, and that's that's. I, I'm not even sure I was acting that part. I was that was real. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now with all this laughter, Tony. All right. How much you know? How much fear and trepidation did you have with all of these young people driving this RV, and you're thinking about the insurance on on everything? Oh, my God, you know, if, if you worried about stuff like that, you'd just be a complete basket case from day one. Uh, at a certain point, uh, you again, you trust in the film gods, and you say, please make this all work out. You can imagine a thousand scenarios where things mess up. And, and in point of fact, there was a daily crisis every day. Uh, we didn't wreck the RV. Yay! But uh, other things... <laughs> We, we didn't wreck it, and I won't mention the ending, of it, but um, there were daily crises that we had to deal with. And I think being a filmmaker and being a director is being like a uh, navigator on a, uh, a boat going down the river. You know, your riverboat guide, and you're cruising through all kinds of hellacious rapids at all times. And your job is just to navigate through and get to the end and not get freaked out about every single rapid that you go through. So... At a certain point, my trust muscle was built to a point where I believed that no matter what was going on, uh, we were going to find answers and we were going to get it done. And uh, right down to the very last day when we were hoping that this taco truck, I mean, look, we were, <laughs> we were hiring locals to provide prop vehicles and there was this, uh, this dilapidated taco truck, which we absolutely must have for the movie and it had to show up for the very last scene on the very last day. And I was saying, I hope to God this thing shows up because if it doesn't work, you know what? And he did. And we shot it. And then I was finally able to relax. Of course. I, I was ha- kind of like Brian. I was the character, <laughs> Brian. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, I have to say, in looking at the taco truck, I'm surprised it could even drive up. It didn't. It did not look. Oh boy! It did not look roadworthy. So, you should have. You should have ridden in it. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, I'm glad I didn't. But I'll take your word. Yeah. For, I'll take your word for it, Jake. So now that the film is ready to be unleashed onto the world this Friday on April thirteenth, Friday the thirteenth, no less. What did each of you take away from this particular project that you'll now get to take? You'll take forward with you into future work that you do. After you, Jake. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I I would say that um, you know chemistry is such an important factor in making an ensemble film, and sometimes that can really make or break an ensemble and how well the characters are portrayed and how, how well, you know, the actors are able to, uh, to give a convincing performance. And, uh, I think the casting was so well done and Tony's choices were so great for the casting that, uh, everyone just kind of brought their own special magic to the film and, uh, everyone's magic kind of, complimented each other's and it, it created something that really plays very well on camera and uh, is something that I think has made a very, very cute, very enjoyable, very fun and touching film to watch. And I, I really hope that, uh, that other people feel the same way when they watch it. And what about for you, Tony? Yes. Um, what I'm taking away from this is a lot of gratitude that I had the privilege to make this film and got to work with all these great people and had this amazing cultural experience in Mexico. So, um, and, and as a filmmaker, it just gave me more experience, more confidence, more trust in the process. Uh, it's not about any particular person. It's about being an orchestra conductor and bringing together all the elements and, and dealing with all the issues that happen when you bring together a lot of creatives uh, with a common goal. And uh, ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm just so pleased with the result and looking forward to doing more. I have another project that I'm working on setting up uh, right now called 45 Minutes to Nowhere, and it's kind of a a story of uh, a young man working his way through the film business in Hollywood, but um, it is very much in a similar tone to Baja, but with Hollywood as the backdrop. But in any case, um, I'm ready to go on that one and learned a lot of stuff and, as I said, very thankful. Well, gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for being on Behind the Lens today. This has been so much fun. I hope you'll both come back on the show again. Absolutely. Sure thing. Thank you so much for having us. Oh my God! It's like yeah. I, I want you to know I already watched the film twice. Just so you know, because I did. Thank you. I fa- thank you. I found it so enjoyable. I watched it going. I watched it once, going through from an objective standpoint. You know, just from looking at the cinematography and the music, and I have to say, the end. Ta- the end credits taco song stuck in my head forever. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but then I went back and I watched it again just for the pure pleasure of watching it. And because it looks so darn good, I really wanted to see all those vistas again. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> 
But now everybody will get to see it on Friday, April the 13th. That's right. Yeah, it's coming out uh, in about 20 to 24 theaters. We're still nailing down a few more uh, across the country. uh, And uh, I don't know where you're based, Debbie. We have uh, three screens in L.A. and three in San Francisco and a lot of other places. Well, everybody will be, they can extend their spring break. For most people, spring break ended, you know, yesterday. Now they can feel like they're back on spring break if they watch Baja. Guys, there you go. Thank, Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you both again soon. Debbie, thank Absolutely. you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Bye bye. And one day I'll really figure out how to work the little red buttons right. Um, so that's all the time we have today. Next week, he's back. Steve Lee is here talking the Hollywood Sound Museum bringing all kinds of cool sound effects stuff and a few surprises that you don't want to miss. So I can't encourage you enough. Watch on Facebook live on our, on adrenalineradio.com on Facebook. You can watch us live next week and see some particular treasures that Steve is bringing for us. So it's going to be a sonic explosion again with Steve Lee next week. Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.